Welcome to A Little Louder Now, a podcast produced by the Bridge Initiative, an FI360 project. My name is Alicia, and I'd like to welcome my colleague for today's podcast, Alex. Hey, Alicia. Hey. So this is a This Month in Women's History podcast episode. We are in October today, and we were talking about Eleanor Roosevelt. Eleanor Roosevelt. She is so amazing on so many levels, but give me something on why we're covering her. I don't even know if I can give you just one thing. Uh, I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt, she she did so many things during her life for human rights. Um, you know, in, I mean, in addition to diplomacy um, that she did with the, uh, her stuff with the United Nations, especially, not to mention, you know, what she did regarding the role of first lady. You know, she completely revolutionized um, the role of first ladies. But why specifically October? Yeah. Specifically, why are we talking about her in October? <laughs> uh, we're talking about Eleanor in October because she was born on October 11th, 1884, New York City, to socialites, um, Anna Rebecca Hall and Eleanor Bullock Roosevelt. I believe his name was Elliot, not Eleanor. I called him Eleanor? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Elliot, rather. Uh, Bullock Roosevelt. Elliot. So, um, in any event... Her given name was actually Anna Eleanor mm-hmm. Roosevelt, but even from an early age, she preferred using her middle name as her given name. Um, she was related to President Theodore Roosevelt, and yes. through her, her mother, yeah, he was her uncle, and then through her mother, she was a niece of tennis champions Valentine Gill, nicknamed Valley Hall III, and Edward Ludlow Hall. Cool, cool. Her her mother. Nick gave her her nickname, uh, which was Granny, hmm. because she acted in such a serious manner as a child. I know someone who I call Granny. <laughs> who is that? It's you. <laughs> you do. You do call me Granny. You call me Grandma all the yeah. time. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go check on Grandma. I'll be back. <laughs> I'm actually um, wearing my Grandma slippers right now. <laughs> I'm shocked. This is my shocked face. But like, how how demeaning to be given that sort of nickname. Um, grandma as a young child by your mother. Well, she, I mean, I don't know if it's demeaning. Like, people say, like, oh, I have a five-year-old who's going on 37. So, it's kind of the same thing, right? Yeah, I guess. I mean, her mother, her mother was a socialite, though, and, and uh, she was, she was considered to be very vain, very shallow. So, I think that she was pretty obsessed with Eleanor's looks. Um, and Eleanor wasn't, uh, the most beautiful. Exterior-wise. Exterior-wise, Interior-wise. The most. She was stunning. Yes. Um, so anyway, we kind of hinted at this, but she grew up in a family that was both wealthy and attached a great deal of value to community service. Yes. So she learned that from a young age. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, she did. She actually, tragedy struck when she was a child because both of her parents died before she was 10 years old, along with one of her brothers. Um, She and her surviving brother were raised by relatives thereafter, and Eleanor was especially close to her father, so dealing with his death was very difficult for her. Yes. Um, It was was difficult for her. Her and her her brother, you mentioned they um, went to live with relatives. It was their grandmother that they went to live with, and um, they were both educated by private tutors. Um, Eleanor, until the age of 15, when she was sent to 
um, a, a girls' school in England called Allenswood Academy, and that was that was kind of where she um, she met this woman, the headmistress Marie Sylvestre, uh, that mentored her, and Marie really promoted social responsibility and independence, specifically in young women, um, which were really ideals that Eleanor ended up holding closely to her heart her whole life. And Marie just, she had, she had a large influence on Eleanor and, and she had later described her time at Allenswood as, quote, the happiest time of her life. I think everybody can think of a teacher or someone in an education space that really inspired them to get involved in something that they truly love as, as an adult. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that she was probably a mentor, a, ro- a role model, a figure of this is what I could be when I grow up sort of to Eleanor in some way. So I think it's really, um, I'm really glad to know who that influence was so that she's not lost to history. Yeah. Uh, But in any event, after school, she returned home to New York in 1902. And at the age of 18, she made her social debut at a debutante ball at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel Mm -hmm. in New York. Uh, as as many young women who were of a certain class did at the time. Yes. And uh, that sounds awful to me. I would not want to participate that in that at all. Not even a little bit. <laughs> I can't imagine you participating in a debutante ball. That would be so bad. I'd have like sp- like they wear white dresses. It's like a yeah. it's like a wedding without the groom. Well, yeah. I mean, they're they, these young women are being presented to society as. Um, like eligible for marriage so they're being put on this um they used to call it the marriage mart so they were that essentially I'm, being like like like, like cow yeah like cows at, at, at auction they would be like paraded in so front of all of these i know right i know you do <laughs> they'd be paraded so do i they'd be paraded in front of like um all of these bachelors and Did they bid on them right mothers. there like you would have no, cow no not really <laughs> i mean but they would be introduced they'd you know what they call do the pretty like dance and have small talk and you know he would go fetch her lemonade and they would talk about they, I don't know what whatever they talked about Debbie Thompson talked about weather uh, social gossip whatever they were wearing Eleanor um, probably was very serious and talked about probably, social issues yes um, <laughs> yeah well because after her debut um, she really followed the family tradition like you mentioned earlier and became really actively involved with social reform work. And she volunteered, get get ready, because there's a lot that she did here. She volunteered as a, a teacher for impoverished immigrant children at Manhattan's Rivington Street Settlement House. Can we, I just want to pause you right there. That yeah. is huge. 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 To someone who is wealthy, upper class, mm-hmm. just had a debutante ball, which is so weird. Um, and... Then she goes and she's like, go, are you? No. She's like, I want to see how everyone else is living. Yeah. I want to see how I can help. I'm in a position of privilege and I want to see how I can help. And so she goes and she finds the most disadvantaged and um, vulnerable people she can, Mm -hmm. the children of immigrants who are starving, and helps to teach, helps them. Yeah. She taught dance and calisthenics, I believe, um, early. So they could, she could, so they could stretch. Um, after the working long hours that they had. But let's talk about settlement houses for a minute because um, I wasn't really yes. clear on what settlement houses were. Let's when, please talk when about we did that. Those. 
Yeah. So, uh, yes, the Settlement House, it was an institution in an, um, like an inner city area which provided educational, recreational, and other social services to the community, um, that specifically for immigrants or really the, the underprivileged. Um, they were spurred by the immigration movement in the late 1800s and the, the early 1900s in the U.S. Um, about 12 million people had immigrated from Europe to the United States, and um, this was kind of the, the city's response to that large immigration because the cities really needed somewhere to put all of these people, and the settlement houses were the answer. So there's a... I'm- this is not so different from what happens now in that these houses are not kept up because Correct. they're they're for impoverished people, people that don't have um, voting rights, they don't have, don't have a lot of rights. representation, they don't have money, really, besides what they can put towards their family, feeding, feeding them and keeping them alive. So they really fell into disrepair. Mm-hmm. And they were really quite awful. And they, and they had to accept work. That yeah, was whatever work. Yeah, any work, but it was often work that was very laborious, extremely unsafe, and they worked in horrible, horrible conditions. For nothing. Yeah. And so Eleanor was horrified with the conditions with which her students in which her students were living, excuse me. And she actually later brought FDR mm-hmm. to them, who was equally as horrified yeah. <laughs> with what was going on there. Um the experience at the settlement house may have helped to spur FDR's later efforts to address poverty and social ills it produced in the New Deal. Yep. Yeah, so, his New Deal programs. Right. So I think it's really important to note that she's at least part of the reason why those came into being. Mm-hmm. Because, well, we're going to talk about later why she's a bigger part of it. But yeah. if she had never taken him there, he would have never known. Yeah. Because that is, that is what privilege is. Mm-hmm. is you have no idea that this is happening to other people because you don't experience it yourself. Yep. And so she made a point to go outside of her box and experience it, and that's very commendable. Yes. She she also did, um, she joined the National Consumers League, whose mission it was to end unsafe working conditions and labor practices in those factories and the other businesses where those uh, immigrants lived and worked. Um for the National Consumers League, she was a volunteer investigator, and she documented uh, workloads, physical toll on the workers, and the sanitary and the safety conditions in which the those workers lived and worked. It's basically snitching. Yeah, yeah. But she would go <laughs> to those settlement houses, and she would document them, and then she'd send them into this National Consumers League. Yeah, that's huge, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so... I think it's also important to note that at this time she's also teaching American history and literature at a private Manhattan girls' school. It's mm-hmm. called the Todd Hunter School, and I don't know how she had time to do all those things. I know, but dang, she did. <laughs> that makes me exhausted just <laughs> reading all of it. Yeah, and so um, she's doing all that, and then she ends up reconnecting with her fifth cousin once removed, Franklin uh-huh. Delano Roosevelt, yes. which I initially was like, wait a minute, why is she Eleanor Roosevelt as a child? And then I realized they were cousins. I was like, okay, well, that's weird. And then well, I realized they're... they were, like, far enough apart that it's not weird. Yes, it's, like, so... great, 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 great. Yeah, I mean... It's their yeah. last connection. It's not, it's not first cousins. So. No. They, it's, <laughs> it's fifth cousins. Okay. 
Uh, by marriage, too. If he's by once marriage. removed, it's by marriage. Yeah. So it's, there's no DNA sharing there, really. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, they met. They had met as children, and they became reacquainted when Eleanor returned from her schooling in England. They actually ran into each other again on a train mm-hmm. to Tivoli, New York, in the summer of 1902. Yes, and they had, like, a, a secret courtship. It's interesting that her debutante ball did not lead to her her finding a husband. It's her own... You are never going to let this debutante ball thing go. <laughs> let anyway. it die. Let it die. All right. I'm one more, maybe, and then I'm done. But, <laughs> so, you to it. their wedding took place at the home of one of Eleanor's relatives, and FDR's relatives, uh, on Manhattan's Upper East Side. She was escorted down the aisle by the sitting president, Theodore Roosevelt, who was her uncle. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, over the next couple of years, Eleanor and uh, FDR had... Six children, uh, but only five survived to adulthood. Um, that's sad. Yes. Um, that's a lot of babies, also. Um, well, good thing she had help. Yeah, well, good thing she had help at home, maybe, uh, because her mother-in-law, yeah, let's, Sarah... let's talk about her let's mother-in-law. Let's talk about her mother-in-law, because I would not stand for this. Just heads up. If anybody was concerned, I would not approve of this. Um, we all know. So... It, FDR's mother, Sarah, disapproved of their marriage and spent the first part of the marriage controlling her daughter-in-law and running both hers and her son's household. Yes. Okay. So Sarah had given Eleanor and Franklin a townhouse upon their marriage. Which was kind until you realized that... Until you realized what she actually did. Uh, (laughs) The townhouse was actually connected to uh, the mother-in-law's townhouse, Sarah's. By sliding doors, which never Sarah herself out. had installed. Yeah, she could never keep her out. So, <laughs> yes. Sarah also controlled the raising of Eleanor and Franklin's children to the point where she said, Your mother only bore you. I am more your mother than your mother is. Yes. No. And Eleanor even reflected later in life, um, saying that, you know, quote, Franklin's children were more my mother in law's children than they were mine. But how much of that was forced by Sarah? Sounds like I mean, I'm a lot sure that it. a lot of it was. She sounds like a force to be reckoned with. That is a kind way to put it, yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they actually... Um, I want to talk about that townhouse for one more second. They, they kept that townhouse until Sarah's death, which was in 1941, um, when Eleanor and FDR, they sold it to Hunter College, who actually turned it into an interfaith and an interracial center. Which yes. just sounds like so- something that's so Eleanor... Um, and she actually continued to visit that house, and she would use it to, like, like make speeches, like a, a base to make speeches, and to participate in activities at the women's college, which I just think is super cool. I really enjoy all of that. I thought you might. Um, so in any event, in 1910, FDR begins his political career mm-hmm. and was elected to the New York State Senate. Uh, three years after that, he's appointed assistant secretary to the U.S. Navy, and the family moved to Washington, D.C. Um, so, when he was appointed to the post, Eleanor did what she was supposed to do as an official wife in D.C. You know, she performed the social duties and attended the parties and made social calls, you know, in the homes of other government officials. But when World War One broke out, she was able to get out of that. Yeah, she really got back to herself and back to her volunteer work, and she volunteered with you know, various relief agencies, including 
Um, you know, she visited wounded soldiers and she worked for the Navy Marine Corps Relief Society um, and in a Red Cross canteen, which um, ended up further increasing her visibility and her political clout, um, in addition to both, you know, increasing her own self sense of worth, but it also, um, it, like, mitigated the distance, or, or increased, rather, the distance between her and her mother-in-law. Um, I want to talk about her volunteer work for just a second. She, she volunteered, uh, I think this was the Red Cross that she was volunteering with. Uh, she was in a booth at Union Station, and she'd hand out sandwiches and coffee, coffee to servicemen who were being shipped out to Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, she also went to a hospital for returned soldiers that had some mental health problems, and she managed to successfully convince the Wilson administration to investigate what was going on in that hospital. And the result was that Congress actually increased the hospital's budget so they could provide better care for those those veterans. You go, Eleanor. Right? It just sounds like something that's so her. Mm-hmm. She's snitching again. Well, I mean, I don't really think of it as snitching. <laughs> I don't either. I think I think she's just shining a light on, hey, this is happening here. Like, make some change. We should do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. She's being active. Mm-hmm. Activism. Um, so, in 1920, FDR unsuccessfully ran for vice president on a Democratic ticket with James Cox. Um, so, around this time, Eleanor is active in Democratic Party politics through the 1920s and was also involved with activist organizations like the Women's Trade Union League. Um, that's Women's, Women's Union. Union Trade League, excuse go. me, and the League of Women Voters. So she really got involved in basically women's rights and women's causes. Um, and then something really turbulent happened. Yeah. Yeah. So it shifted the entire course of, I think, her life. Right. So this was... Right before he unsuccessfully ran for vice president. Yes, 1918. Um, 13 years into their 43-year marriage, Eleanor discovered FDR was having an affair. With her secretary. Yes, Lucy Mercer. Mm Mm-hmm. And he had been contemplating leaving Eleanor. So she offered him a divorce, but he obviously didn't leave. Um, Maybe one of the reasons was that she had such political clout Mm -hmm. and such a visibility um, that she helps his political aspirations, but also the clout of divorce at the time was so bad that he just, he knew it would end him. Yeah, it would have really hurt his political career. Um, which is, it's hilarious because his mother pressured him to stay in the marriage, even though she basically hated Eleanor. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, the experts, um, have, have suggested, um, and this is from my research, that uh, Franklin's infidelity really incited Eleanor's increased um, and increasing independence and her her really further devotion to political and social causes. Um, it certainly, you know, seems that way because from then on, their their union was more like of a political partnership than anything else. And Eleanor, it seemed kind of like that she was more um, active on her social work and more involved in her social work than in her role as a wife. Right. And I think that finding something out like that is is very hurtful and can be very damaging to the the one who's been cheated on. So I think that 
she probably threw herself into her volunteer work because yeah. it it was a, a bright light in a dark time for her. Um, so, you know, and I, I agree with you. And I think you can see that throughout the rest of our, what we're going to talk about today. She didn't see herself as like a meek and mild wife of the president. No. And she definitely saw herself as like an equal partner in this relationship that happens to have a president in it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, they certainly have, you know, perhaps one of the most notable political partnerships in American history. Yeah. Yeah, so a short, um, three years later, the year after he unsuccessfully ran for vice president, he's diagnosed with polio. It was 1921, for anyone not paying attention. And he was paralyzed from the waist down. She encouraged him, though, to return to politics. She fought with Sarah, who was controlling and disapproving. I think we've covered that. Um, (laughs) She wanted him to retire, Sarah, wanted him to retire and become a country gentleman. And Eleanor... And we all know Eleanor won that argument. (laughs) But um, Eleanor pushed him to stay in politics because it's what he truly enjoyed. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it proved a turning point in um, Eleanor and Sarah's long-running struggle between the two of them on who was in control. Yep. Because Eleanor's public role grew. She increasingly broke from Sarah's control. She had more of her husband's ear. He couldn't leave her because of her political clout. Sarah became more and more muted. Yes. Um, as she should have been. Tensions between Sarah and Eleanor over Eleanor's new political friends and her political life rose to the point where the family constructed a cottage um, at Valkill in which Eleanor and her guests lived with Franklin and the children were away to High Park. Like, she essentially just ran away from her. Yep. Just had to get away from Sarah. Couldn't get rid of the townhouse that she lived in. So <laughs> they just... She took her guests out to... Um, this cottage at Valkill. Um, she named the place herself, and um, FDR encouraged his wife to develop this property as a place where she could implement some of her ideas for work with winter jobs, for rural workers and women, um, which was turned into Valkill Industries, which was a nonprofit furniture factory in Hyde Park, New York. Uh, she co founded that as part of this whole um, encouragement from FDR. Yeah, I mean, in talking about Eleanor's increasing independence and confidence, she she was really not afraid to break at this time, especially with the family, and campaign for um, a different Democrat, Alfred E. Smith, and his bid for New York, or excuse me, for governor of New York against her cousin, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Um, both her aunt and her niece, they broke with Eleanor over the campaign and her support of this, um, what they called democratic opposition, but they eventually they reconciled many years later. So think about the conviction there, because that is the son of the man who walked her down the aisle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's her cousin. So, so her conviction of, no, you're not what's best for New York, is impressive. Um, Agreed. So in 1928, FDR was elected governor of New York, and six years later, uh, he was elected to the White House. Yes. And she became... The First, first Lady. lady. Um, Eleanor, she, so we, we've talked about this. She really prized her, um, hard-won autonomy, and she was initially really reluctant to step into the role as First Lady because she was fearful of losing that autonomy as well as having to give up her teaching position at Todd Hunter and the other activities and organizations that she cared about. And she was, she was really unhappy to be what she saw as relegated to the role that had been 
um, traditionally restricted to domesticity and hostessing. So this is going to be a conversation that we continue to have over time, mm-hmm. uh, as we're going to cover several other first ladies. But in January, yes, um, I think one in December as well. Well, she's not officially a first lady, but anyway, um, Dolly Madison really defined what being a first lady was besides being the wife of the president, just a Mm -hmm. figurehead. Um, Dolly Madison defined the role as this political peacemaker, hostess. Um, She didn't see it as domesticity and hostessing Mm -hmm. as a negative thing, how I think Eleanor saw it. Um, Dolly... That was what, the 1780s? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what they needed at that time. I mean, right. People were literally breaking out in duels on the Senate floor. Right. So. And now we're in the 1930s, so our nation has progressed a little bit more. And yeah, the yeah. role needs a revamp, and mm-hmm. it's about to get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, her, her immediate predecessor, who was um, Mrs. Hoover, Lou Henry Hoover, um, she, she had ended her feminist activism when she became First Lady. Is she only wanted to be like a like a like a backdrop for her husband? Um, she wanted to focus on him and have everyone focus on him and uh, not her. So she, she wanted to detract from his exactly. Platform. So she stepped back off of her um, her activism, and Eleanor was like, "Yeah, no, it's not. It's not for me." Yeah, that that may be what Miss um, Hoover felt that she needed to do, but. For Eleanor, that was not a possibility. Right. So I think it's interesting to talk about how Eleanor basically redefined what being a first lady is mm-hmm. until, I mean, current day. Yeah. Um, first ladies pick a campaign or a, what, a theme. A cause. What cause. Thank you. I was going to say shtick. I don't know why. <laughs> it's a little more than a shtick. A cause. Yeah. Something that's important to them. And they start their own platform based on that and it's a it's a platform of activism and this all goes back to Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. I mean just a couple of examples. I mean Nancy Reagan's just say no to drugs campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh Barbara Bush's literacy movement. Bar. Bar, yes. Bar. Uh um M- Michelle Obama. Yeah. Michelle Obama. Her um <laughs> her let's get moving mm-hmm. and then healthier foods in schools. I mean Yeah. Those are all examples of it, so I think there it's, are many other examples. If you want yeah. to look them up, we'll put them up on the um, in the description of the webinar of all of our first ladies and their causes. Podcast, podcast, not webinar. Podcast, yes. <laughs> so let's um, talk about March nineteen thirty three. Let's go back yeah. to Eleanor. So back to Eleanor. Um, in March nineteen thirty three, after her husband was sworn in, she began to transform this role. From a social hostess to more of a visible, active participant in her husband's administration, um, I think it's safe to say that she completely revolutionized the role and moved it out of the role of hostessing and peacemaking and something into activism and reform. Mm -hmm. So it's more of a public eye. Yeah, she, as First Lady, and I think maybe a little bit and probably, I don't know, maybe a lot because uh, he was paralyzed. Um, she really acted as her husband's eyes and ears. When she, she traveled all around the country and the world, she would report back to him um, after she would visit government institutions and programs and, um, you know, numerous, numerous other facilities. I mean, think about it, though. In 
in the 1930s, I mean, there are still buildings today that are not ADA compliant. Mm -hmm. So think about how difficult that would be to have a president who can't walk up the stairs to get into the building. So she really became very important, an extension of him in terms of what's going on here. Talk about, you know, go visit these people, see what happens. I think it's interesting that as first lady, she took that instead of the vice, what would traditionally be the vice president's role. She probably wanted to. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about let's talk about her causes. Um, she did a lot of stuff while she was she did quote in office. She ruffled some feathers, if I yeah. may venture to say so. Um, she championed civil rights for African Americans. She was an advocate for women, American workers, um, the poor, and young people. Basically, so the disenfranchised, the disadvantaged. Yeah, yeah. Anybody who's not in a pl- political position, power, or rich. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, one of the things that she did was she became very close to the NAACP Executive Secretary, Walter White. Um, she invited him and presidents of African American universities to the White House to discuss institutional racism and admitting blacks to New Deal settlements. Mm-hmm. So, we, we referenced this earlier. New Deal settlements were were essentially towns that were just created with New Deal money, taking people from places where there were no jobs and putting them in a place where there were jobs. Like, like almost utopias. Yes. Um, they had all the things. They were, like, self-sustaining, too. hmm So this unprecedented meeting quickly became a tutorial for her on racial discrimination and lasted until midnight. So she then pressured the National Recovery Administrator, Donald Richburg, to investigate race-based wage differentials. Um, which were implemented by Southern Industries and asked the Navy Secretary, Claude Swanson, you know, why were blacks confined to the mess hall assignments? <laughs> That's a boss move. <laughs> uh, uh, it gets better. It gets better. I, she, I'm, she, not, I'm not making that noise because I, like, I fully support what she did, but that takes guts. That takes some guts, yeah. yeah. Let's just straight up ask the guy in charge of the Navy, yo, why are you doing this? <laughs> I love it. So she she told the um, the conference on Negro education, quote, wherever the standard of education is low, the standard of living is low, end quote. And she urged states to address the, the inequities in public school funding. Um, her, like, symbolic outreach really generated a strong response from African Americans. And the, the African American press and a, a very strong communication network ex- really extolled her efforts and by january 1934 she received thousands of letters describing racial violence poverty and homelessness that were exacerbated by racial discrimination and they were pleading for some type of assistance and another boss move she would frequently forward the select of those letters to harry hopkins who's the head who was i should say the head of Federal Emergency Relief Administration. Which is like the predecessor to FEMA. Yeah. Um, and Aubrey Williams, who was the head of the National Youth Administration, um, to whom she had already sent a list of suggestions on ways to include African Americans more fully within that Federal Emergency Relief Administration programs. Right. And so this is where she starts to really go off the rails as a first lady and come into her own right in terms of an activist. Yeah. Um, 
She supported an anti-lynching bill in 1934. This support created some tension between her and the White House staff, which became more strained. When she petitioned her husband to support the bill, he didn't want to do that because it would have ostracized senior Southern senators. Say that. Yes, say that. Um, He refused to support the bill. So his press secretary sent her a strongly worded memo. That sounds familiar. Yeah. I do that a lot. Yes. Um, Criticizing the Walter White, the head of the NAACP, his quote-unquote single-mindedness. This was the the press secretary, not not Eleanor. Right. That's the press secretary. Mm -hmm. So then, um, this is early 1934. So in October 1934, a young man named Claude Neal was lynched and... That was sort of like the flame mm-hmm. to this tinderbox that had been building. And um, she was unable to get FDR to support the bill. And Walter White resigned from the NAACP. She was invited to an art exhibit hosted by the NAACP titled A Commentary on Lynching. Which she lent her support to even though it ostracized some of those senior Southern senators. Yep. And... This incensed a lot of people. Including. Including J. Edgar Hoover. Yes. Who, if he hadn't already, began his file on her. <laughs> yeah, he, he used to keep a file on her. Yeah, that was thick. It was really thick. Yeah. <laughs> she, um, hang on. He, uh, he did, he hated, hated Eleanor's liberalism. Uh, she did not like her stance on civil rights. Evidence. Okay. Uh, and he did not like her and her husband's criticisms over his surveillance tactics. Which um, were questionable. I mean, yeah, definitely. It, <laughs> in, in the, his biopic that came out in 2011, that was, I think it was called J. Edgar or something like that, Hoover. Uh, it kind of like indicated and like subtly that he intended to use uh, that file to blackmail Eleanor Roosevelt. Good luck with that. Before she died. Good yeah. luck. Right? <laughs> so, in any event, lots of people are mad. Yeah. Um, most angry are Southern critics, Southern um, senators, people from the South who feel like, you know, get your nose out of our business. Um, other Americans wrote her to ask if she was black herself because, you know, why would you support... People who are different than you, you, if you don't have to, Mm -hmm. yeah. To which, I'm just like, I can't keep a straight face. To which she replied that, you know, my family has lived here so long that I don't actually know for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I just love the boss moves. (laughs) She is such a boss. I just, you know, I'm not sure. It's not a big deal to me. Like, segregation is a thing right now. Like, yeah. It's a big deal what race you're categorized as. And she basically told everyone that she didn't care. <laughs> yeah. I love that. It was great. <laughs> so she did a lot she did a lot of stuff for for civil rights. Um but she also supported uh government funded programs for uh, artists and writers. Um she gave she gave lectures and speeches. And with her writings, donated all of her fees and earnings to charity. You know, as you do, if you're Eleanor yeah. Roosevelt. 
she encouraged FDR to appoint more women to federal positions and uh, she would hold hundreds of press conferences throughout her tenure as first lady that were only for female reporters during a time when women were typically barred from the White House press conferences. Can, can we just slow clap? Like, I just... I mean, I'm holding my paper right now, so I don't want to slow clap, gonna... but think Tara's going to slow clap for us. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, think about the time period. This was during the Great Depression, and you know, she did this as a way to help women keep their jobs. Yeah. She also wrote a syndicated newspaper column titled My Day, which she used to share information about her activities and communicate her positions on a wide range of social and political issues. She wrote this column for nearly 30 years, from yeah. December 1935 until shortly before her death in 1962. Yes. Um, when World War II broke out, remember she's still first lady. Because um, he was president forever. For, yeah, for <laughs> Almost, well, he was elected for four terms. Yeah. Um, Which is, you can't do that anymore. No. Uh, anyway, World War II. <laughs> Eleanor advocated on behalf of European refugees um, who wanted to come to the United States. She also uh, promoted issues that were important to American troops. She worked to boost soldiers' morale. She encouraged volunteerism um, on the home front. And she championed women employed in the defense industry. She also pushed for the continuation of New Deal programs during the war against the wishes of some of her husband's advisors. I think it's pretty clear she doesn't care what they say. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> um, so FDR passed away from a cerebral hemorrhage in Warm Springs, Georgia on April 12, 1945 at the age of 63. He died uh, less than six months after he was elected to an unprecedented and currently illegal fourth term as president. It is currently illegal. You can only go two terms. I know that. But after him, they passed a law that was like, yes. yeah, we're not doing that again. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, after his death, Eleanor returned to New York. Um, there was some speculation about whether she would run for public office or not, and I wish she would have. <laughs> but instead, she chose to remain highly active as a private citizen. Yes. Yes. She... Eleanor served as uh, the U.S. delegate to the United Nations from 1946 to 1963, where she oversaw the drafting and passage of um, one of the most important pieces of uh, legislation. I don't know if it's a legislation. Uh, documentation um, that the U.N. has done, which is the Universal, Decla Universal Human Declaration of Rights. Which is still in use today. Yeah, it's... She really considered the, the document, which, I mean, even to this day, serves as a model for how people and nations should treat each other, one of her most significant achievements. So, that tells you, I mean, not if we haven't hit this home already, where her priorities were, right? It's, doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, what's in your bank account, like, these are your universal human rights. Right, everybody should be treated the same. It tells you a lot about her priorities and her mindset, and... Um, that's just really impressive. Yeah, and let's, let's talk about this, um, this Universal Human Declaration of Rights for a minute because I think that it's really important um, to kind of explain what it is so that our listeners could see, kind of get, get a little bit more of an insight into who Eleanor was. Um, so this document, when it was adopted, it caused the UN General Assembly to give 
a standing ovation to one single delegate. Can you guess who that was? Boo. Um, Boo Bear Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's actually something that had never happened before, and um, at the time of the article that I read about the declaration, it, I mean, this article was published in 1988. It hadn't happened since. I do not know if it's happened since the article was published. I doubt it. But uh, I like the idea of it only happening once for Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, regardless, you know, she received that standing ovation for the adoption um, of the document, the Universal uh, Declaration of Human Rights. So it's not a binding treaty, right? But right. It's, a, it's a standard of achievement to which nations should aspire. Um, but it has been translated and published in the native languages of all countries and serves as a rallying point for diverse victims of oppression. You know, like Nelson Mandela. Oh, who? In South America. <laughs> or America. South Africa. South Africa. Goodness. <laughs> South Africa. I'm so sorry. Um, so they, the, the declaration is used as a yardstick to measure governmental performance both by UN bodies and non-governmental organizations. So it's influenced the constitutions and legislations of many states and is the main source of inspiration for more than 20 legally binding human rights treaties and for human rights institutions in Europe and Latin America. It is the document most widely recognized as a statement of rights which every person on our planet is entitled. That's the thing that we're going to send to aliens when they come here and be like, this is what we believe. <laughs> it's going to be Eleanor Roosevelt's document. <laughs> <laughs> okay i just learned something about you <laughs> aliens all right when the delegates were drafting this declaration they uh they would work for like 14 16 hours a day and some of the delegates they they prayed to make eleanor tired and asked her to remember that the delegates have human rights too um but they were eventually able to get it completed um to mrs roosevelt's satisfactions um, right so it so they drew, when they were writing it, from the American Bill of Rights, the British Magna Carta, and the French Declaration of the Rights of Man. Mm -hmm. So she recognized that though the Universal Declaration of Human Rights had been adopted, the words were not self-enforcing, and the real challenge is one of actually living and working in our countries for freedom and justice for each human being. I think that this is one by you know her word and her deed that she really lived out as an example for all of us. That's true. Yeah, I think that's really inspiring. Something that we should all aspire to. You know, well, you know, she was still, well, she was doing that. Yeah. She also headed the first presidential commission on the status of women mm -hmm. at the request of President John Kennedy. John F. Kennedy, JFK, if you will. Okay. From 1961 until his death. Her, 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 her death. death. Excuse me. Not his. Her death, not his. Yes, this, um, the, the commission, um, it was established to advise the president on issues concerning the status of women and was created by JFK in 1961. He created it to address people who were concerned about women's status while avoiding alienating the Kennedy administration's labor base through the support of the Equal Rights Amendment. So, Can you say that any faster? Basically, <laughs> it was a way for him to address it without directly enforcing the Equal Rights Amendment, which was a real hot-button topic at the, at the time, yes. and he didn't want to alienate his base. Mm -hmm. So he created this commission as a way to get around his base. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, in addition to all of those, she served on numerous, uh, she served rather on the board of numerous organizations, including the NAACP and the Advisory Council for the Peace Corps. Right. She also, in her free time, um, remained involved in Democratic Party activities and would campaign for candidates around the country if she saw them fit. Yes. She also hosted radio programs and a TV news show 
and continued to write her newspaper column, uh, My Day, as you mentioned before, and she gave lectures as well. So over the course of her life, she wrote 27 books, more than 8,000 columns, and over 555 articles. She also delivered more than 75 speeches per year, and she never used a ghostwriter. Um, During her time as First Lady, she received over 175,000 letters a year, and uh, research suggests she actually actually received about 55,000 of those and generated about 21,000 letters annually between 1945 and 1962. Okay. So... Well, I imagine that... I was was sitting there thinking when I originally read this research, like, what does that mean that she actually received them? And then I was like, oh, that, like, her people handed it to her and she actually read it and then actually responded. Yes. So... If you didn't understand that the first time, I didn't either. Don't feel bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in the 1930s, she was actually very close friends with Amelia Earhart. Um, Another amazing trailblazer. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love this story. Um, Me too. Me too. At one point, the two of them snuck out of the White House and went to a party dressed up for the occasion. Um... They just, like, went and flew around yeah, to just, like, get away from the stress of the White House. They didn't take the Secret Service with them. They didn't... Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just, just wanted a, night, a girl's night out. Yeah. Toasts in the cabin, I sure. I hope not. <laughs> For Amelia. <laughs> they, they actually used to fly together. So Eleanor, uh, she would fly with Amelia. And after, after flying a couple of times, she, Eleanor, obtained her student permit to pilot. But she never pursued her plans to fly because... FDR didn't want his wife becoming a pilot. Buzzkill. Yeah. He's no fun. A little bit. A little bit. Boo. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, I consider her a pilot. Okay. So she died at the age of 78 on November 7th, 1962 in New York City from aplastic anemia, tuberculosis, and heart failure, which is basically just... Her body couldn't come back mm-hmm. from um, tuberculosis, and she just... Gave out? Yeah. Um, let's talk about her legacy for a minute. Her For she, a minute? Well, let's talk, for a few minutes. Several rather. minutes. Several minutes. Let's talk about her legacy. Um, you know, Eleanor, she's still, to this day, one of the most admired first ladies. Her intelligence, her compassion, and her outspokenness made her one of the most quoted women in America still to this day. And you and I have picked out a few of our favorite Eleanor Roosevelt quotes. Yeah. Shall we read some of these back and forth? Rapid fire. Rapid fire. No, I mean, like, not. let's not go too rapid fire, but... Slow rapid fire. Whatever that means <laughs> to us. <laughs> okay, go ahead. You can start. No one can make you inferior without your consent. That's a personal favorite of mine. A personal favorite of mine is a woman is like a teabag. You never know how strong she is until she gets in hot water. Learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Small minds discuss people. Boom. Mm. Beautiful young people are accidents of nature, but beautiful old people are works of art. Truth. It is not fair to ask of others what you are unwilling to do yourself. Friendship with oneself is all important, because without it, one cannot be friends with anyone else in the world. You gain strength 
courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You are able to say to yourself, I have lived through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. You have to accept whatever comes. And the only important thing is that you meet it with courage and the best that you have to give. Those were some of our favorites. There are so many more other Eleanor Roosevelt quotes. I mean, she wrote 75 speeches a year for years. Yeah, and 27 books. Yeah. And all the thousands of There's a lot of things. quotes by her. Um, Please look some of them up. There, yeah. She's seriously one of the most quoted people. Um, sometimes you don't even realize that you're quoting her. Yeah. Um, she utilized her platform and her ener- enormous influence to help form the United Nations, advance human rights, launch second wave feminism, and much more. She was deeply respected during her lifetime, and her stature has not diminished since her death. A Gallup poll placed her at number nine among the most respected people of the 20th century. Yes. Fun fact, um, just to end us on, her son, Elliot, authored numerous books, including a highly personal and repudiated book about his parents' relationship. Um, But also, what I think is a little bit more interesting, is a mystery series in which his mother was the detective. Uh, But those murder mysteries were researched and written by another man, William Harrington. Um, So he might have, like, authored them, but he didn't actually research... Uh, and write them. So, so like ghost, William ghost. Harrington wrote a book about her being... Yes. I like that. Uh, I don't much care for the one that was deeply personal. That's, I agree. That's their business. They have... There's a, I mean, there's a lot of books that are out there about uh, the Roosevelts and their relationship, and a lot of them are... It's impossible to be in the public eye like that and not have somebody write yeah. something about your personal life, whether it be true or not. Absolutely. So I... Um, I think that Eleanor, to me, her biggest, um, the biggest thing about her for me is her activism. Like, yeah, she was first lady, that's great. But she, (laughs) you know, that's not what defines her for me. What Mm -hmm. defines her is her activism and her tireless pursuit of equality for others. Yes. When she already had it, basically. I mean, she had privilege, definitely. Yeah, she was a woman, so she didn't have, like, she wasn't the most privileged of the privileged, but she was privileged. That's the the right word to use. Compared to the people that she fought for, yeah, she was definitely privileged. I think that's something that we can all take away um, from her legacy. Right. So I I think that she inspired a lot of people to to pursue a life of activism Mm -hmm. because of her activism and her... her, um, Legacy, I suppose. And yeah. So let's toast let's, to let's toast to her. Yes, to Eleanor Roosevelt for your activism, and you know you were first lady or something, but <laughs> <laughs> mostly your activism and your um, <laughs> your undying pursuit of equality for others. To Eleanor. So I had a great time talking to you today. Yes, thank you very much for um, talking to me about. Eleanor Roosevelt. You, we both very much love Eleanor Roosevelt and, and enjoyed talking to her, about her, rather. I have, um, I have so much love for her that there were points where I couldn't get the words out because I, know. I was overwhelmed with my love. So please excuse me. Um, my finger open. <laughs> Thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Again, this is A Little Louder Now by The Bridge Initiative. Um, Alicia, as always, you're amazing. Thank, Thank you. you. 
Um, stay tuned for more podcasts featuring great women from financial services and all over the place talking about a variety of topics. If you'd like to catch up on what we've been doing, if you have questions, topic ideas, or if you'd like to join the Bridge Initiative community, you can visit fi360bridge.com to check out previous podcasts, webinars, and blog posts. Email us at bridge at fi360.com. You can connect with us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at fi360bridge. You can also support the podcast without spending a dime by leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we want you all to get a little louder now.